This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. together. Father, we thank you that you that you came to us. We thank you that you that you took hold of us when we were helpless. That you you took hold of us, that you that you held us and that you hold us by your grace. Lord, as we we see today a story of of mercy. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that that we were the ones on the side of the road in a, in a helpless condition because of our sin and that you, you came to us and you, you cared for us and you gave yourself for us in mercy. We pray that you would help us to give ourselves for others in mercy in the name of Christ. We pray it in his name, amen. Well, we are in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Luke that we're, we're looking at various encounters that Jesus has with people in Luke's Gospel between now and, and Easter. And today, we're, we're in chapter 10, and we're talking about encountering his mercy. Luke chapter 10 and verses 25 through 37 contains one of the most well-known parables, maybe the most well-known parable, perhaps uh, along with the, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 and verses 25 through 37. So we're going to look at the story, uh, but we're also going to look at the, the story before the story. Luke loves to give us the story before the story. There's a, there's a context from which each parable emerges. So we're going to look at the context for the parable and then at the parable itself. Luke 10 and beginning with verse 25 and follow along in your copy of God's word. The Bible says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the hands of, of the robbers. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. I can't remember a, a, a season when there was as much flu and sickness as there has been in our community during this, the last couple of months. And it has struck schools and, and families and, and church families and, and maybe your family and some of it has been in mine. And so there's a lot of stuff going around in the air, but there's a question also that's in the air whenever things like this happen. And that's the question, did you get your shot? Did you get your flu shot? And, and so when we get shots or inoculations, we're doing that to, to keep us from getting it, whatever it is. But you know, sometimes I think that when we come to familiar passages like this one, we don't get it because we're inoculated to it, because we think we know what there is to know. And so we get, when we get to familiar passages like the parable of the Good Samaritan, we, we skim over it and we miss new, fresh treasures. They're just waiting to be discovered. So this morning, we're going to dig for some new treasures in this story. So what do we see here? First of all, we see here a question about eternal life. A question about eternal life. If you want to take notes, the, the, the outline is provided for you in your bulletin. There's a question about eternal life, and, and we see that come up in verse 25. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we're going to see that the motives of this guy in asking the question are not good. He is seeking to bait Jesus and, and, and trap him. But the topic of this question. It's a worthy topic. It's about life's ultimate question. It's about eternal life. People in our culture need to think a lot more about eternal life. We don't think about death and life after death nearly as much as people in, in past times did. In the time of Jesus, the infant mortality rate was incredibly high. You had little children that were, that were passing away on a regular basis. And so the life expectancy of, of, of the average person was, was very low. In fact, really up until the the late 1920s and, and the, the widespread use of antibiotics, that was the case. In 1918, 50 million people worldwide died from the flu in one epidemic. Now, when we get the flu or something like that, we, want it, we take care of it through medicine. We don't think that it's going to, to take our lives. And so most people, at least in America, expect to live into old age. And what that does is it, it sort of lulls us into not thinking about death and besides that, in our culture, we have all kinds of distractions to keep us from contemplating life's ultimate question, eternal life. Uh, we, we've got, uh, we, we've got you know, channel surfing. <laughs> we've got internet cruising. We've got social media skimming. And all of these distractions 
that, that keep us from locking in on the questions that are ultimately important. Peter Kreft is a, a Christian philosopher, and he says this about all of our distractions. He says, we ought to have much more time, more leisure than our ancestors did, because technology is essentially a series of time-saving devices. <laughs> Yet we are busier than ever, right? Why? Kreft goes on. We want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, but we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had more leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. I think about the hundreds of funerals that I've done as a pastor. Long ago, when I was just an intern, Pastor Thompson taught me that in every funeral, it's not only an opportunity to minister to the, the grieving family, it's also an opportunity to reach out to people who will be at the service that don't typically attend any church service, but they're sitting there. And there's a coffin that is right in front of them and they are confronted with their mortality, with the fact that the mortality rate is hovering at a very consistent 100% and they're forced to think in that moment about an issue like death and life after death. That's the topic here of the question that is being asked and, and, it, and despite the, the mixed motives of the questioner, it's a worthy topic to think about. Well, Jesus, as he so often did, answers the question with a question. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? In other words, this guy is an expert in Old Testament law. Jesus says, how do you read the Old Testament? And so the questioner probably took a deep gulf, gulp. And he says in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe this guy has heard Jesus teaching because that's exactly what Jesus has been saying. You, you know, in the great commandment in Matthew 22, when someone comes up and they ask Jesus, what is the greatest command in God's law? What does Jesus tell him? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. You, you could sum up all of God's law in the, the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he gives here the answer that he thinks Jesus would want to hear and so Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Now, let, let's stop here because, because this raises a question in our, in our minds. It should raise a question in our minds, but, but, but wait a second. 
None of us do that perfectly. Not a single one of us has, has, has loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, we failed many times to do that. Not a single one of us has, has perfectly obeyed the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have failed to obey that many times. That's why we need a savior. And that's true. But what we don't talk about maybe as much as we should is the fact that if we've truly been born again, that the Holy Spirit has entered our lives and, and that if, we are, if we've truly been, been, been born again, then, then God has given us a new heart that desires to love God and love others. That's the evidence. That the love is the evidence that we have truly experienced the new birth. We don't love God perfectly, even after we become Christians. We don't love others perfectly, even after we become Christians. But listen, the evidence that we have truly come to know him is that there is a transformation and, and that we love God and love others, how, however imperfectly. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Now, there's a context here. <laughs> there's a history here. Because what have we seen in, in Luke already? We, we've seen that Jesus is, is reaching out to people that the religious establishment was definitely not reaching out to. People like ir- irreligious Jews, like tax collectors and prostitutes, and even to Samaritans, and even to Gentiles. And so Jesus is already reaching out to people that that guys like this in the religious establishment considered non-neighbors. And so in asking this question, he is seeking to bait Jesus and get him in trouble because he wants Jesus to affirm that these outsiders are in fact neighbors, which he regards as heresy. Well, Jesus is going to answer with a story (laughs) where he does affirm (laughs) that these people are to be regarded as neighbors, but he's going to show that instead of that being heresy, That's actually obedience to the law of God. And so we see here not only a question about eternal life, but second, we see a story about God's mercy. A story about God's mercy. Verse 30, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, if you, if you go on a tour to Israel, you will undoubtedly go on this, this road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. And, and it, it, it really follows the path. There's, it's a nice paved road now, but it follows the, the same path that the road in the first century followed. And it is 17 miles of twists and turns, bends, sharp bends in the road, and lots of uh, rock facing and caves in the side of the rock. It would be so easy for robbers just to 
start out of one of those caves and crevices and a turn in the road where no one else sees and, and beat somebody, and that's exactly what happened here. And in fact, it is so bad that it's not a, you can't even tell if the person is alive or dead. He's over on the side of the road. He's a, a bruised and bloody mess, and it's not apparent whether he's alive or if, in fact, he's a corpse. And what have we also seen? In, in, in Luke, especially about some of the, the very religious people, they were afraid to touch corpses because they didn't want to be considered ceremonially unclean. In fact, New Testament scholar Craig Keener points out that, that they didn't even want their shadow to fall on a corpse. They didn't want to get even that close. And so there was that, but then there was, on top of that, something else. And, and, and that would be that on a lonely stretch of road, if you looked over and saw someone who's obviously the victim of an assault, there would be a possibility that those who did the assaulting could still be in the area. If we were on a lonely trail and we looked over and we saw some, somebody over on the side that clearly had been assaulted, certainly there would be that temptation, right? To, to think about self Preservation. And so what happens? Verse, verse 31, it says a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Lots of priests lived in Jericho, just 17 miles away from Jerusalem. And so it was easy access to get up to Jerusalem and, and help out with the, the worship there in the temple. And it seems like this guy is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So, so what's he been doing? He's been, in, he's been engaging in the worship. He's been helping people worship God. He's been in Jerusalem at the temple helping to, to lead the worship of God. And he's going back down to his home in Jericho and he looks over and he sees this, this, this guy who's a beaten and bloody mess, doesn't even know if he's alive or dead. And he, and he skirts by on the other side. He takes a wide berth. This is gonna be on my way. Verse 32, Jesus says in the same way a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the Levite was sort of like an assistant to the, the priest. And so again, he's, he's been in Jerusalem helping to, to assist in, in, in worship. But he looks over and he, he sees this, this, this bruised and bloody mess over on the side of the road. Obviously he's been assaulted and instead of going over to him, he, he goes by on the other side. Now, at this point, we need to stop and think about how Jesus' original hearers would have heard this. Because you see, we're conditioned to think of these first century clergy types as sort of hypocrites, you know, self-righteous, pompous, legalistic guys, and we're not surprised that they would pass by on the other side. We kind of think of them as the bad guys, but what we need to understand is that Jesus' original hearers would not have thought of these men that way. Not at all. They would have thought of them as the good guys. <laughs> guys who would be, if anyone was going to stop and show mercy, it would be someone like them. But they don't stop. 
Instead, who stops? Verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. You say, oh yes, the good Samaritan. We'll we'll be certain (laughs) that Jesus' original audience, which was mainly Jewish, would not have thought of, of a good Samaritan. That was like an oxymoron. They thought of Samaritans as, as traitors, as messed up in their religion, messed up in their worldview. There had been mutual animosity between Jews and Samaritans going back centuries. They didn't think of good Samaritans. They thought of only bad Samaritans. And so when Jesus says that word Samaritan, jaws drop. Faces become flushed with, 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 with indignation and anger. And Jesus isn't done. <laughs> what else does he say? Verse 34, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now, this would be like Jesus telling us. There was a man who was on the the trail on Main Street behind Kroger, and he was assaulted on the trail and, 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 and beaten within an inch of his life and he was over on the, on the side bruised and, and, and bloodied couldn't even tell if he was alive or dead and then the pastor came along <laughs> and he saw the man and he quickly skirted by likewise the student pastor came by and saw, the, and saw this man, this man in, in, in a beaten and bloody condition and he hightailed it out as quickly as he could but then a militant local atheist came by a man who who writes letters to the the editor of the paper complaining about the use of the word god in the pledge of allegiance Uh, uh, this man went over to the the assault victim and he bent over him and he sought to care for him and he took him up in his arms and he took him to his car and gently placed him in the, laid him down in the back seat and drove him to Obasi and, and carried him into the emergency room and made certain that he was cared for and, 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 and told the personnel there to, 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 to bill him for any expenses that were incurred. You know, this, is, this is how this would have sounded. Verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now this guy who had sought to trap Jesus just has the trap fall down on him. And he mumbles in anger and humiliation. Verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do 
the same. Jesus will rock your world. What do we see here? I want us to see three takeaways from this. Three takeaways. First of all, something about neighbors. Something about neighbors. Rather than worrying about who is a neighbor, Jesus calls us as his followers to be neighbors to anyone in need. And this includes people who are not like us, people who look different from us and think different from us, and maybe even people who don't like us, and maybe people who we think don't deserve mercy. J.C. Ryle says this, our kindness must not merely extend to our families and friends and relatives. We must love all people and be kind to everyone whenever the opportunity arises. We must beware of excessive strictness in scrutinizing the past lives of those who need our help. What if God had scrutinized our past life before deciding whether to give us help? Did God send his son because we deserve for him to send his son? No, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see something not only about neighbors here, but something about love. Something about love. Again, Jesus is saying that love for his followers is not to be limited to those who love us. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. No, we, we are called to, to love those who don't love us. We are called even to love our enemies. And again, this, this pictures the gospel because Jesus loved us when, when we were still his enemies. He, he reconciled us by the death of his son. We see something else here about love in this story. And that is that love is not mere sentiment mere feelings or emotions. Look at the language here in the story. Look at verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. But then Jesus goes on to unpack what compassion looks like in this situation. It's not sentiment. No, look at the words in verses 34 and 35. Look at the action words. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, 
take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Love acts. Mercy acts. Compassion acts. In fact, how did this whole thing begin? What, what set this off? This, this, what was the context in which Jesus told the parable? He tells it in response to a question. The original question is what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then how does Jesus wrap it up at the end? Go and do likewise. Love does. Love does. It's not mere sentiment. We see here something not only about love, but something about the gospel. Something about the gospel. Well, by this point, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is preparing to take this road, Jericho to Jerusalem. But instead of heading away from Jerusalem toward Jericho, Jesus is going to take this Jericho road up to Jerusalem. And what awaits him there? And he knows what awaits him there. There, Jesus is going to be assaulted by criminals. Beaten within an inch of his life. But there is going to be no good Samaritan there to help. There will be no one to intervene. And Jesus will give his life. He will enter into death itself. And for who? For us. But see, there's a difference between us and the assault victim that was on the side of the road. He was truly a victim. He was just a traveler who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we're not mere travelers, are we? No, we're transgressors. And we're not victims. We're perpetrators. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to give his life for the very people who would take his life and arise from the dead that we might have eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your mercy. Mercy that's undeserved. We thank you that you came to us. We thank you that, that rather, than, rather than making our performance our past life, the issue that you came in pure grace and mercy and love for us. We pray that you would make us so blown away by the mercy that we've received in Christ that we will be people of mercy. Lord, may we go forth from this place today into our community, into, our, our, into the workplace tomorrow, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, 
into our, our homes this afternoon and be people of mercy because we have received undeserved, lavish mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for coming to us. Though we did not deserve it, thank you for coming and for caring, restoring, dying for us, dying in our place, taking the stripes that we deserve so that that we could be healed. Dying for us so that we can live abundantly and eternally. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that, that hasn't come to know this incredible Savior. I pray that by your Spirit that their hearts would be turned. That they would turn to you in repentance and in faith. That they would turn from seeking to live life apart from Jesus and turn to Jesus and trust in him alone and finish work for them on the cross and experience the new life that he gives. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.